My name is Dr. Michaela Keegan Yadley, and I've spent the last 17 years of my career in schools as a teacher and principal. I started the Dissect Ed podcast to help you by using my strengths of connecting and relating to bring amazing guests to you each week. We will cover a wide range of topics related to all aspects of and roles in education. My goal? For you to enjoy and feel successful in your role so we keep amazing teachers and leaders in schools. Thank you for all you do. Take care and enjoy. This podcast episode is brought to you by the 3D Printing Man. Get everything from custom food bowls for your pets to chore lists for your family in more than 15 vibrant colors, all custom designed. Visit his store on Etsy by searching the 3D Printing Man, all one word. Again, that's the 3D Printing Man on Etsy and get 10% off with the code DISSECTED. Are you looking to elevate your classroom management or possibly even just improve it so that tomorrow is a better day than today was? Visit my website at drkeeganyadley.com, linked in the episode notes, to sign up for our free one-hour webinar on the five simple classroom management strategies that will work as soon as tomorrow. There's also a self-paced online course with a workbook for more extensive work in the area. Again, that's linked on the website, drkeeganyadley.com. Happy Wednesday, everybody. We are a day late getting the episode out, and I apologize for that. But we have a really important episode today. Today's podcast features Dr. Kimia Nuru-Dennis, and she is the founder and CEO of 365 Diversity that helps to change policies and actions, curriculum, and class materials for K-12 schools and colleges and universities. She is going to introduce herself and her work So, as we get into the podcast episode. So what I wanted to make sure that I did in the episode intro was talk to you about where I come from in bringing this episode to listeners. The work of diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism is incredibly important work. It is the work, right, In, in fighting the systemic racism that exists in our institutions. And education and public schooling happens to be one of those. And we know this. We've talked about this for a long time. But where this episode is different is that Dr. Dennis has years and years and years of research that she's conducted in this area and work that she's conducted in this area. And you'll hear from her background um, what work she's done. And... In addition, she actually tells us right off the bat that the DEI work that we're doing with the PDs that we're attending and the committees that we're establishing don't work. And you know what? As listeners, I bet you could agree with me that he had no kidding, right? When's the last time you attended a DEI PD put on by your school district that was helpful in any way for you or for colleagues who you know either are deeply impacted by our systemic racism or inequities, your students, or by teachers who may need to continue to work on themselves, right? And I can include myself in that because we're always working and we're always learning. 
So we know that these workshops and PDs really don't bring about much change. And a lot of times they can actually do more harm. I'll just come out right out and say it. So I'm really excited for this episode today. It is a long one. Please stick with it because honestly, I could have talked to and heard from Dr. Dennis for hours longer. We will probably have her on again. Her take and her perspective is one that you're not going to hear in many places. You're certainly not going to hear it at the workshop that your district put on by the group that your district hired. I can almost guarantee it. You're going to hear Dr. Dennis's perspective and her take on what really needs to happen. And she's not alone in this take. It's just a take that we don't hear often as educators and in the mainstream. And I have to say that what she talks about and identifies as the change that's needed is the change that's needed. She is honest. She's extremely knowledgeable. She lives her work. And I want you to know that even though these conversations can be challenging, right? I'm a white woman hosting a podcast. I'm a white woman leading educational initiatives. And I'm aware of that. And sometimes conversations, discussions, and issues can be hard. And that's okay. What's not okay is to shy away from them and not pursue them. And what is okay is to make mistakes and to not be perfect. It's the first thing we talk about in this episode. I have made dozens, hundreds of mistakes in every area, but specifically as it relates to being culturally responsive, knowing the right words to say in the right situation, saying the wrong words sometimes, or just not maybe contributing to things that have been inequitable in the past, and I'm going to make mistakes in the future. It's okay to make mistakes because we're always learning and growing, but what we need to make sure we make ourselves do is stay open to making those mistakes and then to learning and growth because none of us is perfect. As much as we want to be as educators, we're not. And we need to be open. We need to be okay with making mistakes. We need to be okay with having those mistakes pointed out to us and then continue to grow and take action and be better. And that's what I hope you get out of this conversation with Dr. Dennis. To visit her website and to get to know her better, you can go to 365diversity.com. That'll also be in the episode notes. But um, I encourage you to take a listen to this episode. I know you're going to learn a lot from it. I know I did. I can't wait to talk to her again. Until next week, have an incredible week. Take care. Um, well, I would like to officially welcome Dr. Kimia Nuru-Dennis. She is the founder and CEO of 365 Diversity. Really, really excited to have you on the Dissect Ed podcast today because I know that my listeners, our, the audience, will get so much out of this episode. Um, but I want to turn it over to you so that you have an opportunity to introduce yourself to 
the audience, let them know. Um, I think I wanted to ask you, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and, and why you do the work that you do. Well, thank you so much for having me. So again, I am Dr. Kimia Nuru-Dennis. I am a sociologist and criminologist. I am a community advocate and I'm an educator researcher and I'm born and raised in Richmond, Virginia. I lived in North Carolina, North Carolina I can't even say the name, for 17 years, <laughs> and now live in Baltimore, Maryland. And so the work that I do is equity-based work, but my work is based on centuries of Black work and Indigenous work on the Western Hemisphere alone, which is based in hundreds of thousands of years of Black based in African works around the world. And I always make that distinction because most people have not read books until the last few years. And they go based on New York Times bestseller and they go based on DEI office, DEI training, anti-racism, bias training, the catchwords, catchphrases, and all the stuff that became cool, which means it became profitable over the past 15 years. So I always tell people, Black people have literally done trainings, workshops, and taught these courses for generations. It's not anything new. It just became profitable. And in that anti-racism profit, it's mostly white women who are making the profit, including some bestseller books. So I always highlight this because a lot of people don't know the differences between different kinds of workshops, trainings, and classes. They think it's all the same because they think that all they're going to do is come out there knowing the definition of something. And you can do that on your own. There's no point in having training for that. So I always want to highlight the differences in this work. I, I appreciate that so much. I really, um, there's, so much need in, I, I mean, across, obviously in our country, but my work is primarily in education. So I'm really excited for the opportunity today because I know that as much uh, as I put myself in the space to learn and grow, uh, I know there's so much I don't know. And so I am excited for us to really uncover some of the things that we don't know, but should mm-hmm that we don't know and we are okay with knowing that we don't know that as long as we're committed to then learning it when we're mm-hmm. taught it or when we learn do learn it. Um, and what I'd like to get out of today's episode is, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be upfront with my listeners now and in the pre really short pre-show mm-hmm. intro, I'll say it as well, or I have said it if they're mm-hmm. listening now, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes tonight. And, and I know that you're going to correct me and I'm happy about we all that. Make well, I hope you correct me. I'm yeah, all, we all make mistakes. That's part of being people, right? So we all learn, right? Well, yeah, but you, you know, yes, but I think it's important to say that because mm-hmm. I don't know if you've encountered this in the world of education, but educators expect themselves to be mm-hmm. perfect. And because of that expectation at the mere insinuation that something I've done is not perfect, mm-hmm. I can get the really defensive quickly. Yeah. And I, I know your, your camera, it just went out, but our audio is still fine. I'll just trim that part out. Um, but, uh, you know, we are at the, it happens a lot in education where something that we do, if it's, if we learn, if we learn that it's not right or it could be better, we can get very defensive. And then that, that 
prevents us from growing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm excited about this episode tonight because I want listeners to know that it is okay to not be perfect. And from a recovering perfectionist myself, (laughs) I am okay with not being perfect because it means that I have room to grow and and I'm willing to grow and I want to Mm -hmm. grow. So I actually really wanted to start off by asking you, um, a lot of school districts, oh no, actually, I'm sorry. I'm actually going to back it up before we even get there. I think we're going to get into a, a, a phrase that you've used before with me that was new to me and that term or the phrase is power majority mm-hmm. and so before we get into any discussion around that where you where that phrase may come up I was wondering if you could explain to me and to the audience what a power majority is because it might be relatively unknown to my audience okay so power majority is what <clears throat> excuse me we explain particularly in sociology because we want people to understand that Inequities are more than bias. It's more than people's prejudices. It's more than people's differing opinions. It's about who has power. And power doesn't mean you feel powerful. It means in terms of what we call human capital, social capital, cultural capital. So human capital refers to your skill set, knowledge base. Cultural capital refers to how people relate to you. It could be style of dress. It could be how you speak. It could be how you do your hair. It could be an instrument that you play that makes teachers want to relate to you. It makes people in meetings want to say that you are familiar to them. And social capital refers to social networking. And so we have generations of social social scientists who have written about the forms of capital and how that shapes money and money and wealth and it shapes networking and it shapes education. It shapes school systems. For example, power is about the curriculum. Power is about Mm -hmm. accreditation. Power is about standardized tests. It's about literally everything we do as people. So power majority Mm -hmm. regarding race, that's white people. So that's white people of various nations of origin, various ethnicities, various religions, various disabilities, various sexualities, various gender identities, and the list goes on. And that's important to highlight because a lot of times when you talk about white power, people pretend that being poor and white, being working class and white, being white LGBTQIA, being white Jewish takes away whiteness and takes away white power. And that's not the case. Just like if we're talking about gender power, cisgender people, men, boys, they are in power, even if they themselves are within a particular sexuality, have a health condition that does not surpass the power of the gender identity. So we always want to distinguish power majority from population size majority. So in USA, Canada, and Europe, white people are both the power majority and the population size majority. But you have parts of the world where white people are the power majority, even if they are the population minority. Examples, of course, would be the South Africa and the Mm -hmm. origins of the apartheid. Apartheid is still happening in South Africa. It's just not legally announced as an apartheid. Uh, White South Africans still dominate South Africa. Another example of that is Haiti. We celebrate 
the Haitian Revolution in which Haitians battled and kicked out, out the, the European oppressors. However, white people are still the power majority in Haiti, which is why Haiti is also the most impoverished nation on the Western Hemisphere. So that's an example of power differentiating from population size. That's helpful. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, all right. So now that we've talked about or defined mm. essentially power majority that as, as a phrase mm. and as a concept, I really, really want to get into um, what, what the problems are with typical diversity inclusion and anti-racism trainings mm. and like workshops, committees, and all of these statements, because being in a, being in schools, mm-hmm. I have attended, especially, I would say over the past, uh, let's call it five mm-hmm. years. It's probably really more like probably three or four, mm-hmm. um, DEI mm-hmm. trainings. And a lot of school districts have prioritized this. There's money behind it. They're putting big dollars behind mm-hmm. it. We always put more money behind the stuff that we're uncomfortable with or don't know, right? right? Cause we'll pay somebody else to lead that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also pay somebody else, please fix our, please fix the issue mm-hmm. for us. And I know just from my own experience that that has not moved the needle in any productive direction. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to hear from you, why does this approach not work? Well, it does not work for the same reason why PDs don't work for teachers and school officials and school decision makers, right? You know that you're going to PD, you're going, and you know that it's over. There's no Mm follow-up. And there's no required follow-up because accreditations do not require equity. Mm -hmm. So even when schools say they want disability services, they say that they want ramps in the school, they say they want more elevators, they say they want uh, bathrooms accessible to everyone based on disability and gender identity, gender non-identity, despite all those supposed claims of wanting something They never demand a change to how accreditations are assessed and funding are assessed. So that's, so that's why I, whenever official statements happen, whenever schools say they are funding DEI stuff, we already know nothing's happening because the people who've really tried to do equity work over the generations before there was an official statement have been terminated from jobs punished. They've been harmed so that they can't apply for other jobs. And when schools decide they want DEI stuff, they haven't gone back and said, let's help the people we used to punish. They don't go back and say, oh yeah, mm-hmm. we, we got that teacher in trouble. Let's find that teacher. Not saying the teacher would accept an apology, but the fact that school officials and school decision makers don't go back and say, We've punished generations of people for this work that now has become trendy and cool. Let's go back and get these people instead of pretending we're going to add something new without addressing the problems. That's that's helpful. I want to follow mm-hmm. up um, because let's say, so at the high school level, mm-hmm. which is what I'm the most familiar mm-hmm. with, um, I support and coach at all levels but high school is where I was a leader and it's where I was a teacher um there's an accreditation process it's a decennial Mm -hmm. every 10 years um and there's a standard where 
uh, equity. So for example, I worked at, I, my first year at school, they had been on warning status. I think for, I had like 101 violations. Mm -hmm. I, I was a first year teacher. I couldn't tell you what those violations were. I just know this. And I remember within like a year, there were, um, like ramps, like the mechanical, there were stairs there. It was a very old mm -hmm. building. And so there were stairs, right. And like the stair, the, it was, it was inaccessible unless there was a very expensive, um, machine put in to, uh, to move people up, you know, up the stairways. And then there were some other things too. Like I think a couple of ramps were put in or things were widened mm -hmm. and there was some work done. Mm -hmm. So what if somebody were to say to you, yeah, but Dr. Dennis, like there is an accountability structure there and the school had to make those changes in order to keep their accreditation. I'm not challenging well, no, you. Know, I'm just, I'm I've, curious. I've been told that. Somebody might be listening and have that Yeah, thought. I've been told that. So first of all, I have a disability and these accreditations and accountabilities are literally generations of outrage the generations of complaints filed and generations of people told to get over it. So whenever school officials, school, school superintendents, decision makers, politicians, even teachers, because a lot of teachers, they complain about their bosses, but they do everything in compliance to keep their jobs. So whenever people employed by school systems claim that it happened, they are denying the generations and for some things centuries of demands in which people have been punished in some instances murdered for demands so yeah you have a ramp but are you pretending that it's only been a few months since the ramp was requested because i'm sure you have employees who are no longer there you have students who graduated so, so that's what I tell people whenever they try to make people grateful and appreciative, that's another form of inequity where the minoritized people are told to ignore the time frame and how long the demands have happened and the harms that have occurred and then celebrate the outcome knowing good and well, also think about ramps and accessible bathrooms and elevators. Now schools have to invest the time and money in keeping those updated. And a lot of times schools will get elevators that now need to be fixed and the elevators will be out of service. The ramps are, you know, issues like if it's snowing outside and school officials don't think, hey, maybe we should put salt on it like we do the sidewalk. So there's so many things that go into it. It shows that these are quick fixes. They're quick fixes that are required, which means the school officials and school decision makers did it only because now they were forced to do it, which is not authentic in terms of really wanting to help people who need the help. Yeah. Um, can you tell me on this, th on this thread keeping mm -hmm. here, um, and we might be out of order on what I plan oh, to talk fine. about, but <laughs> I, I, so what I have so many questions. I, so many places I want well, to go right fine. now. Remember, but, it all goes together because all of these inequities, yeah. injustices, they all go together because never as people can we separate any components of ourselves. That's been explained by Audrey Lord, by Bell Hooks. We always talk about how all of this combines at all times. So, yep. What's coming up for me right now as I listen to you talk about um, the compliance mm -hmm. piece is 
I, I don't know why, but for some reason what's coming up to me is what unintended messages are being sent to the various people in those communities, mm-hmm. right? Well, and when I say unintended, I don't, that's not an excuse. It's just, I didn't think about it. I thought we're, we complied. Didn't we do the right thing? And I was just, we don't have to answer that right now, but I would, I would really like for listeners to just, to think about that. Like what unintended messages might be, might be being sent or might be heard from your black staff members, black students, white staff members, white students, what students with disabilities, students without uh, adults with disabilities, adults without what, what messages are being sent and received Mm -hmm. when something's done for compliance. Cause there's one thing educators know Mm -hmm. They know compliance and they know when something's being done for compliance purposes and to check a box. It's like our, that's one of our favorite phrases, right? Are we checking a box yep. here? Um, Cause we know yep. it. We know when it's authentic and genuine and we know when it's not. So that's something that just was coming up for me when you were talking about the compliance mm-hmm. piece was, wow, I wonder what messages are being received mm-hmm. by the various members of our yep. community. So that's why I do not allow school teachers and school officials to claim to be confused. They know guidelines. They know requirements. They know due dates. Mm-hmm. They know deal breakers and things that if they don't do, they will not have a job. Or the school You're will right. be put at the bottom level in terms of qualifications, accreditation. Mm-hmm. They know all of this. Yep. When challenged is when they pretend to be clueless. And they Mm. particularly do that for minoritized individuals and minoritized families and minoritized communities. Power majorities, they they answer a lot of questions, right? So this is why I always tell people, this is not about a theory. This is not about even certain books in schools. This is about what it means when school officials, school decision makers pretend that they can't make changes. However, when outraged white people come to school board meetings, when outraged white people threaten to come without masks during COVID, when outraged white people even threaten to come with firearms, which that has happened for centuries at black schools and indigenous schools. So that's not new. So whenever people act shocked by, you know, what's happening in 2020, 2021 in the United States of America, I'm like, well, welcome to what should have been in your history book in the first place that we've experienced. Right. So I mean, this is always the same thing over and over again. It's yeah. it's school officials pretending cluelessness so that we don't hold them accountable. Because mm. they know that they... Because what is accountability? Say it again. True accountability. Mm-hmm. What would... Because what would... Tr- what would true accountability, not accountability mm-hmm. to a, a, an organization, yep. what would true accountability mean for them? Yeah, it's, it's true accountability. So... And so, you know, I specialize in curriculum. I created an academic program. I know what it means when you go through everything the library has, like literally everything. I know what it means when you go through the publishers that are used to see the demographics represented, what it means when you go through the textbooks and journal articles that you use. You go through the demographics of the people in the Works Cited page, the, the authors, the researchers. Yes, it takes a long time, which is why I tell people, you can't say you want equity, but then when we're telling you 
that you can't do indigenous mathematics if it's still going to be white people being the mathematicians and you're acting, not you, but, you know, people acting confused. Mm -hmm. So this all just goes together. So when people talk about curriculum changes, they say, well, as long as we keep basic math and basic history or basic sciences or basic arts and literatures, but the basics still remains the power majorities. Because in their mind, equity means that all of a sudden everything's going to be about indigenous people, black people, Asians, non-white Hispanics, non-white Latinx. Oh, instead of a bunch of men, now it's going to be a bunch of women and a bunch of gender non-identifying people. It's going to be a bunch of LGBTQIA. And I tell people, if you're outraged that now you're only going to learn minoritized people's works, how do you think it feels when we only learn white people, cisgender people, men, middle upper class scholars, able health people, right? Including in terminal degrees, you can have PhDs, MDs, and you're literally learning the power majority stuff. So when people act mm-hmm. mad that now the curriculum's being thrown apart and now you're learning about minoritized people, I'm like, you're learning knowledge. If we, you're mad that we're picking and choosing what knowledge you want to learn, that we want you to learn, but you don't understand how we're bothered that for centuries, and not just United States of America, but Canada, Europe, everywhere around the world, when you go to a continent of Africa, Asia, when you look at the school curriculums and the publishers, K through 12 and colleges and universities, it's very European white-based work. And a lot of times people get offended when I say that, but if we're talking about gender justice, white women in particular appreciate when I talk about how this is men's work. They're like, that's right. We need more women in there. So, okay, so now let's make it about race, right? So you can understand the men dominance. Now let's address the white dominance. And so that's the same thing over and over again when we're telling people that you have to understand that the realities are not gone just because people are in denial about the realities. Yeah. Something this may, I, I may be way off in saying this, but just again, something that's been on my mind a lot. Oh, like this mm-hmm. week. I don't know why this week, maybe it was just thinking about our episode. Maybe I'm not sure why this week specifically, But I kept, I just keep thinking, it might just even be social media and the stuff that I'm just consuming um, combined with it. But I keep saying to myself, and I was a history teacher, um, if we had taught, if we had been teaching history, the the right, the real history, we wouldn't, I shouldn't say that, I'm probably really wrong about this. But if we had taught, because of human nature and the power majorities, but if we had been teaching the real history the whole time, we wouldn't find ourselves in this debate of um, critical race theory. Like this wouldn't even be a t- conversation right now because we would have just been teaching the right history all along. If we had done it the right way or actually taught history, then we wouldn't be having this conversation now. I, I, that's a, I don't mean that in reality because in reality, history is told by in the, through the eyes of those in the majority, mm-hmm. right? Or power majority. But pretend that wasn't a thing and we had actually taught what happened then we may not then we wouldn't be here right we wouldn't there's a reason why we're here and I'm not even I'm I haven't even stu- honest to in being completely transparent I have not studied critical race theory or even what the curriculum calls for um 
I've done that kind of on purpose, but like, I understand that it's at the center of a lot of heated debate. And I just keep thinking like, but if we just taught history, if we had just been teaching it, would we even be in this position of where we're having this heated conversation? I mean, the whole focus on critical race theory over the past few years is because of white outrage. And that's white people on both sides of the political parties. Tell me, can you tell me more about that? So critical race theory is a theory introduced, particularly by black theorists in the 1980s. You know, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw in particular, law professors, law students. So it's among the thousands of years of black theorists. There's generations of research and publications of critical race theory. It's not a new theory. So a lot of this is based in political outrage and people pretending that a particular president introduced problems to the United States of America and created Mm -hmm. horrible stuff. And I always tell people, this is literally how the United States of America was created. Um, It's the creation that a lot of people have been able to ignore. And this is why indigenous people, black people in particular, can be outraged because if if the topic was gender inequities and men all of a sudden open their eyes and they're like, wow, there's a lot of gender disparities. A lot of white women would be annoyed with that. They'd be like, like literally, don't you remember women's suffrage? You know what I'm saying? So you have to understand why indigenous people and black people can be annoyed when people are just noticing stuff 2016 to 2021, including, you know, medical and scientific racism and classism during Mm COVID-19. And they're like, oh my goodness, how's this happening in America? There's five centuries of medical racism and scientific racism on the world. I mean, how do people think that our bodies were torn apart? Sarah Bartman, you know, Henrietta Lack. I mean, people used for five centuries in laboratories despite white people not creating science, white people did not create universities, this has been the foundation. So we've always been the lab experiment without consent. Mm -hmm. And so so critical race theory is just an additional theory to address that. It's not used even in most law schools. Mm -hmm. It's never going to be used in K through 12. Um, It's not Mm -hmm. used in most colleges and universities, like even in the social sciences, I use the research in my classes the same because I'm a theorist. I specialize in sociology theory, criminology, criminal justice theory. And so there's thousands of years of theories, millions of theories. You won't hear about most of them. So I tell people, you always have to notice why people are outraged. They're outraged over something that they know nothing about. They've never read the research. They they know nothing about the theory. Um, Yeah. And most theorists have never heard of it because, again, we're not going to know most theories that exist. So I don't waste time on outrage over theories and stuff because for teachers who claim that now because there's outrage over theory, they can no longer address racism, that's their excuse. Because, like, literally, they weren't doing it before they discovered critical race theory uh, because of a news story. They didn't discover it because they were actually reading JSTOR in the library. Um, They weren't addressing racism before they discovered critical race theory. They're not going to address racism now. They're using an excuse. And Black people, we've we've been given five centuries of excuses. So teachers 
this is why I tell people like teachers unions, it's very difficult to find teachers unions that focus on changing curriculum. They specialize particularly in making sure teachers have benefits and salary. And then when people say, okay, now can y'all protest about the stuff we're learning? Can you protest about bathroom access? That's when teachers unions step back. So this is where minoritized communities also are skeptical of many teachers. In fact, most teachers, because most teachers have proven time and time again, including during COVID, that they know when to have deal breakers. The deal breakers just aren't for the rest of us. So like when they say they're leaving the school because of COVID, okay, but you were there for 30 years while teaching false history, when teaching mathematics based in a European white form. So this is your deal breaker. So that's where people need to understand the patience that minoritized people have had of educators because we're always told to be patient. Changes are happening. Mm. We're The same thing we're told by presidents and politicians, we're told that by teachers and school officials. We're told that the problem is us being outraged, not the realities of the schools. That's an important, that's such an important distinction because I also, you know, again, um, it's not to be like ignorant to critical. Actually, when I first read about, it was like a synopsis mm-hmm. on critical race theory, Must it had to have been over the summer or it was last year, whenever it started to come up in um, discussions or arguments that I would see on social media. I was like, hmm, but it like, I don't even know what that is. So I, I looked up a synopsis and I was like, this is just, this is, this is nothing new. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like when people started to say like, now we can't teach, we're being prevented from teaching history. I was a history teacher mm-hmm. and I, I taught history. I started teaching in 2005, mm-hmm. but I was, I was teaching in a different sense, not as a formal Mm -hmm. teacher, but I was always working with kids Mm -hmm. since like 1996. Mm -hmm. And I was like, but no, but I've been like, I've been trying to and seeking to teach truth for a a long time. So like, but nothing's, nothing's going to stop me all of a sudden from teaching true history. So why would this, why would a ban or some kind of legislative, whatever it is Mm -hmm. like, no, you can still teach it. It's history. You're teaching it. Um, and I've been, that's kind of been, again, like, I guess I'm kind of confessing here to, I don't know, whoever's listening, like, these have been my thoughts over the past, I would say, probably year-ish as this stuff has been coming up in this particular way with critical mm-hmm. race theory and education, because I, I've i been perpetually confused, and I think to myself, well, it's my fault because I'm not really looking into it too deeply, but I've also just been confused because I'm like, it, this doesn't seem complicated it seems like it's just stuff we, we should, be, if you're not, if you haven't been teaching uh, the tr- true history, then shame on you. Um, and if you have been, then you're going to continue to do that. Yeah. Like that has seemed that simple to yeah. me, but I was like, I think I might be missing something mm-hmm. because it seems like this huge thing right yeah. now, but it doesn't really seem that, doesn't seem like it should Yeah. Be. So the way that the schools get teachers is how they do standardized tests, right? And of course, mm-hmm. the accreditation requirements. And so that's why I tell people don't use terms like systemic, systematic, if you're not going to actually address the people. So when I do presentations and trainings, I say, we're not going to use abstract language here. Call out the actual people by their name, because there's no point in you protesting down the street 
like like if you were marching and protesting down the street, you hopefully would not be yelling, yeah, structural, 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 systemic, systemic. Protests usually call out the actual people by their names, right? So the same thing happens when we're talking about the problems with the schools. So a lot of the teachers who don't change history classes and they don't change mathematics classes and science classes will tell you that they don't change that because the standardized tests aren't changing. And Mm -hmm. it's messing up the students because the students are still expected to learn this version that's not completely accurate, but that's the version. So just like when we're talking about the fact that you can access African mathematics textbooks, indigenous mathematics textbooks, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, humans originally used mathematics and sciences using art and figures and shapes before the numbers were introduced, Mm -hmm. right? But if a teacher said, hey, I want to teach that, most of the people doing the standardized tests and accreditation would say, no, you're not going to do that. Which is interesting because now we have, of course, over the last, what, century more in a lot of universities, they've celebrated the finite math classes. Mm -hmm. I took a finite math class as a first semester college student. It was an interesting class. The professor was a white man, very excited, but he did not teach us the real history of finite math, the real history of people who use shapes for mathematics. Mm -hmm. They didn't teach us the full history of that. So while changes can happen, teachers need to know why I'm not excited by just their reading list. Like when history teachers are excited because they're passing down to each other a long reading list with all these Black literatures, and and I tell them that's wonderful, but it's still a subtopic. Just like Mm -hmm. in, in college, if you're not learning anything until a subtopic course that's still illustrating that the main topic is still this and quote unquote, those people are a subtopic. And so this is why I tell teachers, they have to do more than do a hashtag or have a reading list for their class because they have to also address how their students are learning something that's not going to be illustrated in other classes and in the entire school system. I, you know, I tell I mean, I've been in interesting positions because I, you know, I was a teacher mm-hmm. for eight years and then um, a principal. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to serve many, many, many hats mm-hmm. uh, and serve many people and answer to many different people. But when I, I was a little bit, I, I don't even know if you call it rebellious because I just like, I, I wouldn't compromise as but I was, and I was also a history teacher, not scrutinized too heavily, but I wonder what I would have done had I been a math or English teacher at the high school level when the curriculum changed and like writing was completely taken out of the history, um, curriculum in my district and all of the thematic units that, uh, that gave us opportunities to really go deep into and bring in so many different works mm-hmm. around a topic or a theme that was completely taken away. Mm -hmm. Um, And then something was given to us that took all of the opportunity of rich learning away. Uh, My friend and I, my colleague and I friend, we spent the summer rewriting our kind of rewriting Mm -hmm. it. And like, we didn't even, didn't ask for permission. Didn't, um, didn't, we just did it. And I was like, it wasn't even a question though. It wasn't, we weren't worried about getting in trouble 
we were just, we wanted to make sure we, we just we wanted to make sure we did it and we did. And I tell people, I tell teachers that sometimes I think they're a little bit surprised to hear that come from me because I've been a principal too. Mm-hmm. But if the, if I ever, if somebody ever asked me, Michaela, would you still do the same thing on the other side of being a principal? I would say damn straight. I would. Um, and that might be surprising to some people, it's about, you got to take risks. Mm-hmm. And when I say risks, like, I think people have to also decide, you know, what am I willing to risk? Mm-hmm. What's worth the risk, right? And like, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to, uh, I don't know if I'm on some end of a spectrum. I'm not really sure. I'm just me doing what I was mm-hmm. doing. And we were, you know, like, this isn't right. So we're going to keep, mm-hmm. keep certain things in or add things in, take things mm-hmm. out. Um. But I think, but it's important, I think, for teachers to have, you know, their own sense of free will. Like, I have a lot of respect for teachers, no matter what grade level they're at, when they push back mm-hmm. and say, no, I don't, this, I have a problem with this new curriculum, because every two years, it's like we're throwing new, uh, first of all, sorry, Scholastic and all these other companies, they make so much money, mm-hmm. but we throw money at problems that we don't know how to solve. Right. And we, like I said this before, we throw money at scary problems or things that we don't want to address or don't know how to, or don't have time mm-hmm. to. And so then we get this beautifully packaged curriculum and, and it says things like, you know, graphic organizers or uh, bilingual or uh, access, you know, notes home in Spanish. And we buy it. I say we, people buy it, leaders buy it because they're like, oh, it checks a lot of these boxes of things that I know we were missing. I'm going to buy this one. I'm going to have the teachers are going to teach it, teach us to these standards. They're also measured by this test. And there are teachers who like really push back against that. I have a lot of respect for mm-hmm. them because it means they're thinking, they're at least thinking critically, like through a lens of, okay, I'm not just pushing back just to push back. I'm not a contrarian. I really am looking at this and I have, there are issues here, here, and here. It's not addressing this, this, and this. It's not even incorporating what we used to do here, here, and here. I have a lot of respect for teachers who do that, educators who do that. And I would encourage anybody listening to always keep that, always keep that critical lens on because I, it's scary. I'm just going to, I mean, I don't know how many, um, public, like K-12 public school teachers you, um, like interact with. I know you, a lot of them, but I don't know if this conversation ever comes up as, um, the fear of like the ret- of retribution mm-hmm. that they feel from their leaders. Um, and I think what I'm saying right now is like, you know what? A lot of people have faced retribution in the past from their leaders, but you know, we have to decide like what's worth speaking up on what's worth, what's worth speaking up for. Yeah. Uh, so we just have to also be, be honest though. Every generation of teachers is only relative few who are actually speaking up. And the relative few who are speaking up, most of those are not speaking up about equity-based actions in the school, curriculum changes, and stuff that actually Mm -hmm. is profound in the long term. And so, and that's why it's difficult. I mean, the work that I do, I, I challenge school decision makers, I challenge medical and health professionals, and of course I challenge police. Because the groups that harm us the most and control our lives the most are the groups that also want the most support. 
they will say they're the hardest workers, they're the most abused workers, but they don't, it's like they can't comprehend by choice who's being harmed by their services. And so that's why, and even people who they're teachers and they also have family themselves or they're police officers and they also have family, they're medical professionals, health professionals, and they also have family. It's often the case that a lot of times they prioritize championing their occupation instead of Mm -hmm. thinking beyond your occupation and who's being more harmed than helped through your occupation. And I, I think I brought this up before and sometimes I think I wonder, because I think I've, I've been in this place before and like I will openly admit it here on this podcast and in, in front of any audience, not just my own, that I've been closed mm-hmm. before to or defensive. I, I remember a particular time in my life in college when I came up against, not against, but like I, I was fate, like a mirror was held in front of me and I, A, didn't understand what was being reflected to mm-hmm. me. And B, it was, it hurt, it hurt a lot around my own, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, I had a teacher call me racist. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say it. Uh, uh, A professor. And it was psychology. It was, I was taking, um, I think it was called multicultural psychology. It was a Mm cross-section class. And I, it, it, it was a topic that I was deeply interested in. I was a psych major. But I also had, um, I was trying, I was lear- trying to learn as much as I could put myself in a lot of situations that were new. And, um, when I thought I had it all figured out and I wrote a paper, I, the way it was, the way that she approached me and, and to- told me I was racist. I remember I was angry. I was, I mean, angry is an understatement. I was, but I didn't, I didn't let her know that because I was too shy, but I was, I was angry. I had so many feelings. I remember my friends all wanted to go see the movie. It was the year uh, Remember the Titans mm-hmm. came out and I'll never forget. Cause I'm like this, like, I hate scary movies. I don't like sad movies. Like I just want to go see like happy movies. Mm-hmm. Right. So we go to, we go to the movies and I remember watching that movie and I was angry the whole time. <laughs> I was so mad. And I'm like, man, I don't even recognize myself right now you know, that was 20 something years ago. Um, and I, I can recognize it now as I was going through, you know, learning about myself and I didn't like what was being reflected to me. Mm-hmm. Now I don't recommend people going around calling each other racist. However, you know, what she was hoping to get across to me, um, I can say now, like 20 years later, I actually understand and can see what that was that she was trying to get across to me. And I'm actually kind of grateful for it because I maybe not in that moment, but it did help me grow and continue to grow. Um, so, you know, I think as, as teachers, like when we, in education, we can tend to get super defensive, like I said. And if we think past, like you said, you said, I'm going to try to paraphrase or reflect. You said, think past our own profession and to the greater community, right? Into who may be harmed by our practice. What does that say about me, right? As a school leader, as a teacher, if I, if I'm har- if my practice is harming somebody or a practice I'm leading is harming somebody, what does that say about me? Mm-hmm. And I think we're afraid to look, we're afraid that we're afraid of that answer mm-hmm. or even the, the mere thought of that. Yeah. And so that's the thing. I don't know. I don't waste time on 
<clears throat> being concerned with whether people are afraid because mm-hmm. if you if you're going to waste your time wondering about whether people are interested in equity work whether they're afraid mm-hmm. whether they're sensitive whether they are offended you're never going to get anything accomplished that's an intentional distraction mm-hmm. the same way i don't uh, actually white people call people racist the most that includes white liberals white progressives white conservatives because white people have, it's intentional design, right? It's intentionally designed Mm -hmm. to make it such that, first of all, people will go based on dictionary definition of racism, which is this falsehood that is based in bias versus power. And so when white people start to battle each other and call each other racist and then call us racist, there's no such thing as racism against white people. There's no such thing as reverse racism, but Again, since the 1980s, that's what white people have done. And it's intended for us to now waste time debating with white people, trying to convince white people, trying to explain to white people. And I don't do that. I don't call individual white people racist because we're not going to waste time on that discussion or argument Mm -hmm. often. Um, Instead, I just say all white people contribute to and benefit from white power and the resulting outcomes. The same way we say all men contribute to and benefit from. All boys, it doesn't matter how polite you are. It doesn't matter how many friends of particular identity you have. Your power majority status, it also doesn't matter if you have minoritized identities within your power majority identity. Like white LGBTQIA, you're still a white. So there's a reason why nearly all funded LGBTQIA organizations and safe zone trainings are white people. It's difficult for black and brown people to find LGBTQIA spaces and trainings. So, Mm -hmm. and that oftentimes bothers white people because a lot of white people were taught all their life that black people have to spend our time explaining to white people and arguing Mm -hmm. with white people about who is the racist. Mm. Like that's a lot of times I've been told that well, you're not willing to have discussion. I said, this is not a discussion. This is a distraction. Just like when men tell us that we hate men, that's an intentional distraction that most boys and men are taught all their lives that instead of focusing on changes, now they're going to argue that we hate men so that we'll try to convince them otherwise by increasing men's power to prove that we love you so much you can be in control of us. That's the whole disguise for every power majority as compared to minoritized people. The minoritized groups are supposed to not want the power majority to think that they are hated by the minoritized, even if they deserve to be hated, right? We're supposed to be compliant Mm -hmm. and convince the power majority that we still love you. We just want to hug you and share power with you, which that's not what we want either. We don't want to share power because we don't want a power ranking at all. So I always explain right. this to, to people because when you do trainings, even when you're on committees like health committees, the moment you talk about inequities and in health outcomes, inequities and in education outcomes, white people get offended because now they want the focus to be on polite white people. Well, I'm a polite white person. I'm this, I'm that. And we tell people the outcomes are the same no matter how much you smile, no matter how much you have a t-shirt that says be kind, no matter how much you consider yourself a white ally, the outcomes are the same in schools, in prisons, in police arrests, in police brutality, in, in everything. 
So instead of wasting time comforting white people so that white people feel comfortable, it's, it's focusing on the results. And I always tell people when we're talking about equity results, yes, you're going to lose friends. You might have people threatening your career, whatever the case may be, because inequities are based in minoritized people having to support inequities in order to keep jobs and stay in school and to not be arrested, to not be lynched, right? So it's the same process over and over again. This process is literally the same thing that humans have done for hundreds of thousands of years to harm each other and control each other. America has falsely presented itself as superior to other nations in terms of wars, in terms of brutality, in terms of inequities. Canada does the same thing when they say that they're superior to America. They say, oh, you all are still by the only race. Well, you need to be like Canada. Uh, Canadians who are indigenous, who are black, who are Muslim, have been protesting and speaking out against that in Canada for generations. So any collective that claims that the complaints are, are false are lying. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that's why I always tell people, mm -hmm. whenever you hear people complaining about your complaint regarding inequities, that's the same distraction that they're attempting. They, they're trying to blame you because they want peaceful oppression. You know, peaceful yeah. oppression. If you're mad at a president, they might, you know, they might want to hear that because they want it to be about presidential elections and, and wasting time like that. But the stuff that's happening in-house, like in schools, they don't want that real work to be done. I can attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, 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 on di for in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering. I I noticed that is this related to why? Um, because I'm going to admit the term and in, in, in the concept of implicit bias mm -hmm. is something that I've current. I've recently talked a lot about. I've talked about it. Um, when I say talked about it, I've. I remember taking that test, the assessment when I was in college as one of one of my part of my, one of my classes on the computer mm -hmm. and you like tap the space bar. Right. And I think it's, I don't know if it's Harvard. I don't even remember who puts out yeah, that. I think it's, it's Harvard. Places, um, including Harvard. Yep. Yeah. The implicit bias test. Um, and I did that, I think in 1998 or 99. And then again, I, it was something that the teachers in my district when I was it was part of their training that was organized by whoever might've been Harvard actually. Right. Um, I, let's call it three years ago before the pandemic. So we were, I know we were all together. And so I actually went to the training and I did it with them. Cause I, I was like, I'll sit down and do it too. I'm not above anything, but I will say that implicit bias and I've talked a lot about, I noticed that for you, you, you don't want to use terms like implicit bias or focus there. Is that related to what you, we've just been discussing for the past, 10 minutes yes. about that it's about power not about yes. bias i don't i don't do off. implicit bias trainings bias training assessments i i am above that and i want everyone to be above that um and it's it's ironic that people support bias trainings through harvard when harvard is based in slavery that's where the wealth of predominantly white research one wealthy schools is based in slavery so why are people allowing these schools to also be the expert on bias trainings? Even if it's black faculty presenting the bias trainings, it's still support through 
the people who benefit and profit through enslavement. And so I don't support implicit bias trainings. I don't support bias trainings. I don't support DEI certifications. Uh, those are resume builders. There's a nothing to, um, to brag about regarding that. Uh, the two people who, the two groups of people who kill us the most do the most bias trainings. And guess who those are? Police officers in police departments and medical and health facilities. So uh, their bias trainings have, they don't change anything. Um, telling someone that they have prejudices and biases don't change outcomes. They're, they're not required to change their outcomes. They're not required to change their actions. The policies and practices don't change. So my colleagues who do impl implicit bias trainings, they know not to come to me with that because I'm never going to take one. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to support theirs. Um, I consider those scams and money-making schemes, and I don't do those at all. And so I just encourage everyone to stop doing those and to stop complying with that. Instead, say, instead of this bias training, what are we changing in terms of policies and practices? What are we changing in terms of actions? Let's say all of us have bias. Okay, now what? Who right. are the, what are the demographic and cultural identities of people in terms of income level? in terms of wealth accumulation, in terms of race, ethnicity, religion, gender identity or non-identity, sexuality. What are the identities of people, regardless of their bias, and how do those identities shape the ability to take certain actions, to be the ones in charge of the policies and practices, and who are the minoritized people who comply because they're told they have to or else, I mean, it's, as a black woman, we're told that we have to comply. You know, schools are majority white teachers, majority white school officials, school decision makers, and also in parts of the world. So we're told, and it's an example of what Dr. W.B. Du Bois calls a double consciousness. He's saying as black people, we have to wear different hats. Because if you don't, you won't survive. You won't make it through school. You won't make it around police officers. You won't make it in political spaces. You won't make it even walking down the street in spaces where white people are easily offended and feeling threatened by black people. So this is why I tell people there's nothing that comes from bias trainings. Even when people say the bias training is going to result in policy change, you can do the policy change without the bias training. So I consider bias trainings a distraction, no matter the explanation that people have for doing a bias training. So thank you for that, for explaining that. Um, that makes a lot of sense. It's probably also has, it's probably why I've actually been frustrated with DEI trainings in general. Um, you helped connect some things for me as to why I've, I have been frustrated. Um, but my question is, so let's say, I don't know, let's say next month, this is not going to happen, but let's say next month I became the superintendent of a school district mm -hmm. and I want to, I know, I mean, I think having been a special educator, um, I have seen, uh, the systemic inequities for so long, um, through that lens of, uh, of education and then other things have been op that opened to me. So I know they mm -hmm. exist, right. I don't have to be convinced. So let's just say I go into a district and the first thing I do is I do my own equity audit, mm -hmm. right? I look at different outcomes 
and what I assume to be true is true. And I know there's change that needs to be made, but I don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. And I came to you and said, Dr. Dennis, what, like, where do I, where do I, what do I do? Where do I start? I'm not afraid of offending people. I'm not afraid of like, I'm not really afraid of that, but like, I don't know where to start. What do I do? What, what might you say to me? Why are you superintendent? Um, why am I superintendent? You mean, why did I get picked or why did I want to do it? And I tell that to everyone Um, who says they don't know what to do. Right. So think about if a medical or health professional comes up to you, you're Uh a patient and they say, you've got high blood pressure, but what do I do? You'd be like, I'm supposed (laughs) to be the one to ask you, what do I do? Not you asking me what you do to help me. You're in this profession. I don't think most people who are superintendents, should not be superintendents. So fair. So I'm going to tell you my plan. Okay. <laughs> no, my, my plan is to, I, I need to make people aware of the inequities like that I've just uncovered. Why would I keep that to myself? And so think, uh, what I would want to do, sorry, no. go ahead. So think about two things. When you tell us you just uncovered the inequities, right, that's, that's admitting that's... that you've ignored the inequities, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. If I'm new to the district, it might be that I've just, like, for in this particular place that I'm new to, I this is what I have found has happened. Like, I wanted to have specific data to show. Oh, okay. Because exactly. I know the sorry. inequities in every district, and I don't have to be in there. Yeah. So... Same here. Yeah, so you don't so I'm just going to come armed with my Yeah, data. so you don't want to say you've just discovered it. You know, there's there's no such thing as any school district that has equity in, you are in terms of curriculum, yes. the book access and libraries, the textbook publishers mm-hmm. use, even bathroom access for most schools, disabilities. So there's there's no school, you know, district that's, that's doing what they say that they want to do in their official statement. Yep. So you already know that, right? Well, I think that when I would... Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think what I'm going to, so then I think what I'm going to do as this superintendent in this district new to me would be to look at the, at the structures. Um, so at hiring, right. So how do we like who gets paid what and what are they paid for and how do we hire and who, who's represented in those groups? Mm-hmm. I'm going to look at the, um, the books we're using, the authors we're using, mm-hmm. Um, the curriculum and who and who those companies are and why we're using, You're using them. them because they give free books, presentation yeah. that you'll keep using it, and then you get discount right. masks. And uh, you already know the answer to the questions. So, like, I do. yeah. So when you say why are people hired, it's because um, there's forms of tokenism. Certain minoritized people are hired right. based on this assumption that they're not going to really demand changes. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really going to be the same thing. So so this is why I always tell people there's some time wasters. Time wasters and when you act like you're new and I've got to figure out why yeah. this is happening. It's pretty much safe yep. to assume why it's already happening because it's literally yep. the same excuse no matter where you go. Right? That happens everywhere. Um, just like mm-hmm. when someone wins a political election and they come in, they're saying, we're going to figure out why these economic inequities are going <laughs> on. And you're like, darn it. As voters, we voted on you because you said you knew. So why are you, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. Okay. you know yeah. what I'm saying? So, yeah. so I just tell people, whenever you come into this new position, that's a decision maker at that top level, yes. 
Although yeah. there are legislators, the legislators truly don't know anything. They're not reading the literature and going to schools. They, even some of them who are educators, they don't know anything. So, so this is why I tell superintendents when they're going into this, superintendents have experiences. They come from being educators. They're researchers. They know a lot that's yeah. going on. They know why yeah. changes are not happening. So they have yes. to really come in there in a forceful way, in a sense, not like Joe Clark on Lean On Me. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. He was not yeah. liked by a lot of people and he's still not. But um, you can't come in there like that. And of course, he was a principal. But you have mm-hmm. to come in there without pretending that you're clueless and you need to be taught something. Yep. You have to come in there saying, I actually know a whole lot. Um, you know your background. And now here are the changes that need to be happening, but we're going to have to find different ways to make the change. You can't okay. say, like, if you want to change a curriculum, you can't say, this is the one way you're going to do it. This is the one way. Right. Because I'm going to tell you, as someone who's been added to curriculum change committees for K-12 through schools, they, again, love to use stuff from Ivy League schools regarding curriculum changes. Why are we using Ivy League schools, curriculum change materials, when people in indigenous communities, black communities, Asian communities, LGBTQIA communities, and the list goes on, actual communities and families have said, here's the work that we have. We have black bookstores. We have black libraries that have thousands of books that you will not find anywhere. They're here. Mm-hmm. So you really don't have to patronize these wealthy schools to get curriculum paperwork, right? You have people right. who've been providing that that resource to you. So what you really need to do is say, we need to be more involved in our communities. Like the same way schools will hire social workers and most social Mm -hmm. workers are not equipped to do what they're supposed to be doing either. But why hire social workers when a lot of things that these social workers are doing, like being involved with the families and the communities, that's what superintendents need to be doing. Yeah. involvement 100%. instead of it being a battle because most teachers are taught that it's us versus them the teachers don't understand the families don't understand we're going to battle it out instead of we're going to unite because literally you're being harmed by the exact same people yeah so that's what i always tell school officials to focus on don't do any more pds uh those are time wasters like like the work that i do when I do trainings, I tell people, when you bring me in, I'm not going to waste time on definitions of terms. I'm not going to waste time on you all doing meet and greets and introducing yourselves to each other. That's you all are so grown that you all better do that before I'm hired. <laughs> I'm literally here. Right now, everybody, they're listening. They're like, yes. Like, yeah. Like, why yeah. are we doing PDs where y'all are acting like you've never heard this person say this before? Like, As much as we've been on committees, we've been on meetings, we've been annoyed by people. We've had lunch breaks where we're like, I don't want to sit beside the person. And then you, you know, pretend to like the person. Why do that over and over again? Like this is a playground, right? You all are adults with decision-making abilities, with different levels of power that might be different from your demographic and cultural power. So that's why when I come in, we're literally changing policies, practices. We got to talk about accreditation stuff. I mean, a lot of times superintendents pride themselves in challenging the key decision makers. This is where we have to say, well, what are you challenging them regarding? Like, Mm -hmm. how do you pick and choose what should be challenged and what should be 
handled and complied. And so, so if you were a superintendent, you would come into this already having processed this. You're, you're, you know, you've spent time reading, you spent time drafting some policies, you spent time already meeting with your colleagues and, Uh and, and you'll talk about how to get more involved with the communities because, you know, a lot of these school decision makers, they claim that they're in these communities. They claim that they themselves have families who are products of these schools, but yet they choose to have selective vision without peripheral vision. Uh And uh, I always tell people, my parents kept my brothers and me in the predominantly black Richmond public schools because they did not want to be hypocritical and take us out of the schools. My parents, both of them are sociologists and they said, we can complain, but our complaints only matter if we keep you all in the schools. Nothing changes if we pull you from the school, put you elsewhere, because then we're just leaving behind a bunch of black children who are mistreated, including by black staff. The curriculum, you know, my parents taught us we had to learn at home what's not going to be taught in the curriculum, no matter how much we complain. So that's where superintendents have to realize that we have a lot of harmful stuff in these schools, including mm-hmm. in these prestigious, successful schools, including in private schools. Yeah. There's no such thing right. at any of these schools as a good curriculum. Like even the indigenous schools, black schools that have been formed to create these spaces, to focus on knowledge, sciences, STEM, technology. When you look at their curriculum, their sciences and technologies and mathematics knowledge is really still very European white men. So think about what it means when you're priding yourself and you're getting funds and supporters because you have this black STEM school. We're shaping our communities and sending you off to college And then you look at the curriculum and there's no reference to African mathematics, African sciences, African laboratories, African universities that have existed for hundreds of thousands of years. But the creators of these schools, they thought they were doing something unique, but it's still a form of tokenism because you're still supporting that same old curriculum. You might add some black people on the top, but it's still this notion that you're not changing the real stuff because you know that changing the real stuff is going to lose some supporters. They're going to lose some funders, right? Yes, absolutely. And I, I can say that I, you know, I've, I've actually been present at some board school board meetings where this has come Mm -hmm. up um, in, 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 you know, there were some times when I was really proud Mm -hmm. of the school, um, it was a several districts together where they stood, where they stood and they were like, you can, that's fine. You can leave, you can take your money. You can. And I was, I was really proud in those moments. We needed more of those moments, but I was really, I was proud in those moments. Um, I, the last question I want to ask you, it, it's, it's twofold, but it's along the same okay. lines. I want to ask, and this, I, I'm going to say it's our last question for okay. now, because um, I feel like there's so we'll much more. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I do. I want to ask you two things. One is how I mean, we've kind of already answered this throughout the entire episode, but how does a school or district leader differentiate, determine, distinguish, decide which which consultant 
DEI trainer to bring in to work with their staff because that it, that is a decision mm-hmm. that's happening mm-hmm. every single year when budgets are you know when, when the budgets approved now they have to look for the vendor they're putting out you know requests for proposals mm-hmm. and they're getting bids in what are we looking for and what are what are red flags what are we lo- what are we not looking for yeah and where do you come in yeah so <laughs> Although my name is 365 Diversity, I did that before the DEI acronym was very popular. And I did that because when we talk about diversity, no matter what the dictionary says, when I talk about diversity, it includes every component of inclusion, equity, and justice. I don't distinguish that because I tell people, you can waste the whole life talking about definitions, but instead I'm saying diversity can include all of that. So, for example, when you look up, if you're just looking for DEI and D&I, people like myself, you might not find because I don't use those acronyms in reference to myself. Because my work is based in centuries of work before these acronyms existed, before all that stuff. Like, Like Black activists from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s will explain to you, Black people have done these trainings for generations oftentimes for free. We don't want it to be for free, but they just want us to know this is not something new. So when choosing, you have to be honest about what you want. Do you want a real change or are you all wasting time like you're on the playground in the sandbox and at the end of that hour, it's basically a lunch break and you came from it defining racism and sexism, which is another waste of time PD basically. And this time you've paid the person thousands of dollars. I did a video the other day where I addressed how a lot of places are very happy to hire someone who charges 20,000 more than I charge because that other person charges for nothingness. You, you yes. spend $25,000 of the funds and you've come out of it with a delicious lunch break from Jason's Deli. Um, you've got that mm-hmm. extra wonderful sauce that comes with the strawberries and we're all friends as staff we're friends now because we disagree during this training but we're friends they don't want to pay me because there's going to be tension i tell people you can't Mm -hmm. address equity and expect that everyone's going to be friends that power majority and minoritized people are going to hug before during and after there's no yep. such thing ever for hundreds of thousands of humans years where challenging power, dismantling power, and addressing inequities has resulted in the power majority excited. Right. Right? Whether right. it's challenging yeah. politicians, challenging wealthy people, you know, challenging cisgender, heterosexuals, whatever the power majority is, never unless it's tax deductible, never are they going to say, I'm going to be told about what changes I need to make and then we're going to go shopping afterwards. So I tell people, I'm not training you all how to curse each other out, but I'm training Mm -hmm. you all how to actually make some changes to the curriculum for classes. The changes will offend people, including some students who are accustomed to power majorities being the only thing learned. It's often the case that students, including students with minoritized identities, when they're learning historical and current facts and knowledges, 
some of them get mad because now they're like, well, you're not preparing me for college or a, co- or a career. You're making me have to be liberal. Like they think it's like political parties and stuff. Like, no, right. like you, learning and being a good person doesn't, is not a particular voting pattern. <laughs> it's really yeah, unfortunate exactly. that in America and parts of the world that you have this thing that if you're good, you vote for this person. I'm like, yeah. no like it's literally not about uh, that so so that's just one thing I tell people you just got to think about how much you're willing to pay and why and how mm-hmm. challenged are you willing to have so the work that I do I actually yeah. do follow-up assessments so I specialize in doing annual assessments because I did that as faculty for our department part of the college accreditation So I tell people, you're not just coming here to define stuff. You're not just coming here. I can't stand role plays. So like, like who is the largest slice of cake? Like everyone's standing in line, step up here. If this happened to you now, you know, that's, you know, those are, those are things that were popular decades ago and people keep using them and they're hundred percent time wasters. They're distractions from changing curriculum, changing policies, Changing accreditation, like, so you talk about changing standardized tests, right? The people paid to do standardized tests are about the same as the people paid to do the accreditation. They're not usually, they're not using knowledge to do what they're doing. They're using their own cultures and identities. And of course, bias does come in there, but that's still about power, right? And so we have generations of documentaries about the problems with accreditation, the problems with school uh, standardized tests. We have the generations of documentaries about the school to prison pipeline. All this stuff has been said over and over and over and over and over. Yeah, I know. The changes don't happen because people who want to keep their job just comply and they don't want to be blamed for their compliance, but I blame them. I hold them accountable. We should. I mean, I should be held accountable And we all should be held accountable um, because we should all be held accountable um, and and be charged with continuing to do better um, and make the change. Yeah. So that's why I just tell people if if they're hiring someone for nothingness, they'll spend a lot of money and they'll come from it. Everyone's going to lunch to have fun. If they're hiring someone to make some changes, and I'm not talking about doing an assessment, a bias training, all Mm -hmm. that stuff. I tell people when I'm changing policies, you have to bring in the decision makers because one other attempt that schools and businesses and organizations do is they'll put in their administrative assistant, knowing good and well, the administrative assistant can't change policies, cannot vote on policies. So they'll pay, but they'll know that nothing's happening because the administrative assistant's not going to be able to challenge anyone without losing a job. So they also have to say, if we're hiring someone, who's going to be in this training who are actually going to be held accountable for not doing anything based on the information gotten from this training? Who are we going to be held accountable for doing nothing and using excuses for not doing anything? Thank you so much for tonight. If I'm going to put everything in the episode notes, but if people are driving to work and are driving around and you're doing anything listening right now, they can find you at uh, 365diversity.com. Yes, they can. And they better be looking at the road though. 
Yeah, sorry. No, I don't mean. Don't look now. Wait till wait till you get home. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they don't want to click in the episode notes. They're just listening, but they they're at their computer and they want to whatever they want to take a look yep. at at you and what you do. Yep. They're going to 365diversity.com. And I want to thank you for tonight. I want to thank you in advance for future episodes that we're going to do together um, in future work. Um, and I hope you have a great night and we will talk thank soon. Thank you. You know, I am really happy that we had an opportunity for Dr. Dennis to essentially say to me, you know, Michaela, if you were going to be a superintendent, which by the way, I'm not, but if you were, and you're telling me that you already know that inequities exist in our education system, what is the point of going in and doing a whole study? And she's so right. We cut out so much of the unnecessary bureaucracy when we just come in and say what we need to do. Now, I understand that we we have so many different people who make up our education system. And, you know, I've had really challenging, uncomfortable conversations with lots of different people, especially in my role as principal. And so this work is not something that happens overnight as much as I wish it would. But I hope that this episode gave you a roadmap as to what you might need to do differently if you are planning to tackle and tackle the system and and tackle the DEI work in your district or in your school. Thank you for tagging along for the conversation tonight. Thank you for engaging and thank you in advance for the work you will do with this information. Take care, have a great week, and we will see you next week.